A few months ago, I was listening to a podcast that was all about storytelling and how to be a better storyteller and what goes into a good story. And at the end of the podcast, the host asked the guest if he could share just a short five-minute story. As well, Fantastic. And I don't know if you're up for this, but do you think you'd tell like a really short story? It's okay if you're not game for it, but I'd love yeah. for people to get a sample of a, of a story that's sort of an example of what we've been talking about. Yeah. All right. I'll give you, I'll give you the quick version of something. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. So I'll tell you, I'm going to choose a very small moment. This is about the smallest moment that I can think of (laughs) to illustrate the point. So I'm leaving the gym just a a few months ago, this happened. I'm leaving the gym and as I'm coming down the stairs and I'm feeling really good about myself because I've just exercised for 45 minutes and I've not yet eaten a cheeseburger. So it's this unique time in my life where I have done something really good for my body and have not defiled it with you know, fat and carbohydrates yet. I will. I'm on my way actually to a cheeseburger on this day. But this little time in between, I feel good about myself. And I'm heading towards the door and my keys fall out of my hand. My hands are all sweaty, so they slip out. And as they fall, they sort of land on my foot, like half on my foot and half off. And before I can even bend over to pick them up, this woman coming into the gym, walking in the opposite direction, bends over, picks my keys up off my foot, puts them in my hand, and then just keeps walking. And I can't believe it. I would never pick the keys up off someone's foot. Like, I would never pick up anyone's keys, I don't think. I have a friend who's in a wheelchair, and if he dropped his keys, I honestly would do sort of the trigonometry to determine if he can get his own damn keys or do I have to help him. And this woman has done this for me. She picks up my keys, and then she goes into that little room where she's going to ride a stationary bike to nowhere, while some authoritarian in spandex is going to shout at her for not going nowhere fast enough. And she hasn't waited for a thank you or a gift or a parade, all of which I would have expected had I done something so selfless. And so I'm standing there in front of the smoothie bar with my keys in my hand, and I am thinking about what a horrible person I am (laughs) and how just in the last hour, how horrible I have been. Before I got to the gym, I went to the supermarket to get a Gatorade And as I was walking in, the Boy Scouts were set up in a little table by the door selling candy bars. And I hate that. I hate that they sell candy bars because there's already candy bars in the grocery store too. So it's like putting a hat on a hat. Why are you selling me something that I could get for cheaper, you know, inside the store? And so when I walk up to them, I used to be able to tell them I don't have any cash on me. You know, I would say, oh, sorry, I only have a credit card. But now they have phones and they say, oh, no, we can take your credit card. No problem. And so now what I do is I pretend that I'm on a phone call. This is what I did on this day. I put the phone to my ear and I pretend I'm talking to my wife and that I'm in this really serious conversation. So as I walk by them, I can sort of wave them off by pointing at the phone and, and letting them know I'm, this is really serious. And then when I leave the grocery store, I actually leave from the opposite way and I walk all the way across the parking lot. I do a full circle just to avoid these kids. And I was a Boy Scout for all of my childhood. Boy Scouts saved my life in a million ways. And yet I'm not willing to give these kids $1 so they might get to a summer camp someday. And then when I got to the gym, I was walking in and I saw this woman coming sort of diagonally to me towards the door. And I realized that I was going to get to the door about 10 seconds before she was, which was going to require me to hold the door for her. And I hate this too. I hate when I'm ahead of people in the world. And then I have to stop and hold doors for them. It makes me crazy. 
And so what I did to avoid this, I did, again, some mental trigonometry, and I realized if I quicken my pace, I can get to the door maybe 15 or 20 seconds before her, and then I won't be required to hold it anymore. And so that's what I did. I walked faster and slipped through the door and avoided holding a door for another human being. And then when I was done on the treadmill that day, I had to wipe the treadmill down, which makes me crazy. I feel like I've just run for 45 minutes. I've done God's work. Like, I don't want to have to wipe this thing down. And honestly, according to the golden rule, you're supposed to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I don't care if anyone ever wipes the treadmill down. And so if I don't want people to wipe down the treadmill, I shouldn't do it either. The golden rule. But I know I have to because I know there's like people watching and there's probably no one watching, but in my mind, everyone is always watching me. And so I wiped the treadmill down that day, but I do a bad job of it. I do like a passive aggressive, slight wipe down just to make myself feel a little bit better about doing the thing that I don't want to do that I should do. And then I leave and drop my keys and this angel picks them up off my shoe. And I think about what a horrible and selfish person I am just in that last hour, all those bad things I've done. And so I leave the gym feeling terrible about myself. And so the next day I pull into the gym and it's pouring, it's cats and dogs. And as I'm pulling in the spot closest to the gym door, there's someone backing out of it. And I'm so excited because I'm not going to get wet. My kids call it the best spot in the lot. And so I stop and I wait for that car to back out so I can take the best spot in the lot. And as I'm waiting, I see headlights behind me, another car who's pulling in, waiting for me to move out of the way so that they can park probably like nine miles away at the back of the parking lot. And then as I look back down, I see my keys in the ignition. And I think about the day before with the angel who picked them up. I swear I can still see see some of her like angel dust on my keys. And so when that car clears the parking spot and it's my turn to take it, I drive by the parking spot and I park nine miles away and I give that spot over to whoever's behind me, probably a serial killer, but whoever it is, they get the spot that day because I decide to be a slightly better person. It doesn't mean I've changed my life in any way. I still hate wiping down treadmills and I still hate holding doors and I still dodge the Boy Scouts at every chance that I get. But when I'm holding my keys in my hand, when I'm looking at them, I want to be a slightly better person. And for me, that's at least a good start. So that is a story of a tiny little moment that when it happened a few months ago... And while the podcast up to that point was interesting, it wasn't until this moment that Matthew Dix had told this story that I was kind of starting to buy into this idea of how powerful storytelling can be, even in such a small context. It doesn't have to be a big event. It doesn't have to be this big monumental moment, but it could be something simple and still be so moving. And so I started looking into this guest, Matthew Dix, and found out that he had a book called Storyworthy that was all about crafting a good story. And I also found out that he had his own podcast where him and his wife, Alicia, would take these stories that were told at these storytelling competitions, which I didn't even know was a thing, and they would analyze them and look at what makes these stories good stories and what changes he would make to make them even stronger stories. And then I found out that he was a classroom teacher and that he used storytelling in his own class as an educator. What originally led me to that podcast was I just wanted to be able to tell better stories in social context, but I hadn't actually considered using storytelling as a tool in the classroom. I'm Tom Gibson, and you are listening to Stories from the Classroom, and today we're exploring actual storytelling 
in the classroom. We'll be looking at what makes a good story and how Matthew Dix uses stories in his classroom. You'll hear me take on my first thoughtful attempt of crafting and telling a story to my students and doing a self-assessment on my story based on the things that I learned from Matthew's book, Storyworthy, as well as have Matthew dissect it in the same way that he does on his podcast. Additionally, we'll hear from an experienced storyteller teacher, share one of her stories that she told to a group of freshmen, and then I'll have Matthew talk about what made her story such good storytelling. And so hopefully hearing a novice storyteller like myself, followed by an experienced storyteller, can kind of give you some insights into what to avoid, as well as what it can look like and sound like when it's done really well. And lastly, we'll share some resources for you to become a better storyteller in your classroom. I had never heard of The Moth before I had listened to this podcast with Matthew Dix, and I think I'm the only one because every single person that I've brought it up to is like, oh yeah, I love The Moth. But The Moth is an organization that promotes storytelling. They've got a podcast, they put on storytelling competitions, and they've got open mic competitions called Story Slams, of which Matthew Dix has competed in over 70 and has won 39 of them. And from there, they take those winners and have them compete in the Grand Slam championships, of which Matthew has competed in 24 of them, winning six of them. So all that to say, the man knows how to tell a good story and wrote the book called Storyworthy on how to craft a good story. And as I was reading through it, I started to feel a little overwhelmed at the amount of things that go into crafting a good story. But what I appreciated was about a third of the way into the book, Matthew shares the few things you should keep in mind that will make your stories better than 90% of the stories that people share. So I think the fundamental problem people have in storytelling is they think that a story is stuff that happened over the course of time, rather than actually looking for something of meaning that someone might want to hear about. So rather than just speaking chronologically about your day, a story is really about a moment of realization or transformation. It's either I think about the world or myself or other people in a different way, that's a realization, or I transform. I used to be one type of a person, but now I'm another type of person. I think that's what we're looking for when we're looking for a story. And I think those moments of transformation and realization take place almost instantaneously. I call them five-second moments, because I really do believe over the course of about five seconds, we become a new person, or we think in a new way, or we see the world in a new way. And so as a storyteller, my goal is to find moments like those in my life, moments where I suddenly feel differently or see differently or am different in some fundamental way. And that is my story that I'm going to tell. And then in terms of telling it, what I always tell people is I start at the end. I start with the moment. Like that moment of realization or transformation is always going to be the most important thing that I say. Nothing else in my story will ever be as important. So it needs to be the end of my story. Because once I've said the most important thing in my story, people will stop listening. They'll start to drop off very quickly. And so for me, telling that story is, how can I get my audience to that moment, to that final moment of realization or transformation as effectively as possible, with as much context as possible? So that is essentially what I try to do. And I tell people, if you're talking... If you're talking about a moment that means something to you and you're crafting your story in order to land in that moment effectively, you're doing better than most people. And it turns out that the movie Jurassic Park is a fantastic model for good storytelling. Yeah, I'm sort of obsessed with that movie, actually, and all Spielberg movies, to be honest with you. You know, people think about Jurassic Park as a movie about dinosaurs. But if you really pay attention to that film, 
it's really the story of a man who can't be with the woman he loves completely because she wants to have children and he does not. And right in the beginning of that movie, that is what happens. They have a an encounter with a small boy. The the man, Alan, sort of treats the boy very poorly. And the woman says, you know, why did you do that? And he says, you know how I feel about kids. They smell, they're expensive, they're stupid. He hates kids. And he says, you want to have one of those? And she says, not that one, but I'd like to have a kid someday. And right there, Spielberg has laid out for us what this story is actually about. It's a relationship between two people that has to somehow change in order for it to work. And over the course of time, it's not surprising to see that Alan ends up in Jurassic Park, running away from dinosaurs, trying to protect two small children at the same time. And as he's protecting these children throughout the course of the movie, he's growing closer and closer to them and starting to understand that children are not smelly and stupid and expensive, but they're actually funny and they're creative and they're problem solvers. And so Spielberg layers all of that, you know, under dinosaurs, because the dinosaurs are what get you go to the film. Because if I said, hey, you want to go see a movie about a guy who can't fundamentally be with the woman he loves until he learns to love children, and the movie will show us how he learns to love children over time, you'd never go to see the movie. So that is why it's a great movie, though, because it's not just stuff happening. It's not just people running away from dinosaurs. It's people transforming in deep and meaningful ways that we understand, and the dinosaurs are the things that keep us watching. As I was trying to think of how to actually begin to implement this in my class, I was curious of how storytelling from a stage would look different from storytelling in front of a classroom. It's not that different, to be honest with you. I have to train the kids not to interrupt me when I'm telling sort of a more formal story. They're not accustomed to that. They always have questions. I guess the biggest difference for me is if I tell a story on the stage, I like to leave some unanswered questions. I like the story to linger with my audience. And an adult audience is willing to accept that. Kids will not accept that. They hate every unanswered question. So at the end of every story I tell in the classroom, I always say, so what questions do you have about the story? And they always want to fill in all the gaps. With adults, I wouldn't let them do it. But with kids, I know it's just going to pester them if I don't. Uh, But I tell them the same way. I stand in front of my kids, often on my stage. I say, I'm going to tell you a story now. They get really excited. They love the stories I tell. So it's nice, it's a, but it's very, very similar to what I do on the stage. And so we began to explore what it actually begins to sound like when Matthew is telling stories to his class. I guess I do it in a lot of ways. One of the things I do is I just tell my kids stories. Part of it is educational. Uh, you know, I'm teaching through stories. I'm also teaching stories all the time to teach them to become better writers and speakers. I want my kids to leave my classroom being more interesting as people. I think people tend to fundamentally not be very interesting in the things that they say. And if I can get my kids to understand what a story is, how it works, and how to tell it, and to choose the right things to talk about, because that is critical. I always say I'd much rather hear the right story told poorly than the wrong story told well. I want my kids to go out and become people that others want to listen to. So it works both ways. It's me telling them stories all the time and them starting to learn to tell better stories, both on the page and sort of on the stage, which I actually, I've I've built a stage into my classroom. So I put them up on stages on microphones and have them perform all the time. Could you kind of share just in the last week, how did you match a story with a lesson that you were wanting to teach to students or several stories with several lessons, just so we can get an idea of your thought process? Sure. Well, I told one this afternoon. It's a big one that I tell to kids every year, for example. 
So there was a boy about eight years ago named Jamie who found a, a spoon in a pile of leaves. And it was right around the time that Lord of the Rings was popular and he, he loved it. So he takes the spoon out of the leaves and he calls it the spoon of power. And because it's the spoon of power, I spend the entire day trying to steal it from him. And I fail. He leaves school with the spoon of power at the end of the day. And the next day he comes home, he comes back to school. He's drilled a hole in the spoon his father has. And he's put a chain around it. And now he's got it around his neck. Like, you know, like the ring Frodo carries around in Lord of the Rings. Now I can't steal it because he's like really made it into a spoon of power. And I tell the kids how Jamie wears it for weeks. And then one day some kid comes in and he's sad because he's discovered his parents are getting divorced. They've told him. And the kid's sad all day, and finally Jamie gets up and he puts the spoon around the kid's neck. And he says, you need the spoon today more than I do. And it becomes this thing where kids just begin passing the spoon when they need it. Jamie's the caretaker of it, and when he sees a kid nervous before a test, he'll put the spoon on the kid. It becomes this beautiful thing. And on the last day of school, I always say to kids, do you have anything you want to say to the class before we you know, part forever? And he hands me the spoon, and I try to push it away. I say, no, I can't take the spoon, Jamie. And he said, no, it belongs here. I found it here, and it has to stay here at this school. And now you have to put it on kids when they need it. And today I had a kid who needed it. And so it came out. And part of that is creating a culture in the classroom, which my stories do all the time. The funniest thing was one of my students, after I told that story, he said, why do you have the craziest kids in your classroom? And I thought to myself, It's not that I have the craziest kids, it's that I tell you stories about the kids before you. And so this this like shared history develops and the kids get the sense that they're going to be part of that shared history and they will. I'll tell their stories in the future. And that becomes really important to kids. They feel like they're part of something bigger than just, you know, what they're occupying now. So I tell stories for that reason and to teach those lessons. You know, one of the kids said to me, as we were talking about the story afterwards, he said, wow, it's really not hard to feel happy. You just sort of need some little thing to spark your day. And I thought, yes, beautiful. Thank you. You know, and I didn't want to sort of hit him over the head with that lesson, but they picked up on that. And so that becomes shared history. But I tell stories in just about every single thing that I teach as well. Uh, Today, we were talking about Pocahontas. We're reading this great book called Blood on the River. It's historical fiction. And we were talking about uh, Pocahontas, the Disney version versus the historical version. And it was really interesting because the historical version, she's 10 years old. And Disney does not make her look 10 years old because she's going to marry John Smith. And so the kids are talking about, she's 10. And finally, this girl in my class, she says, she's 10, but Disney makes her look older because it's not cool to marry a 10-year-old. We all laugh about it, you know? And I end up telling a story to the kids about a time when I was... 21 and I dated a 30 year old because the kids were like, well, what's, you know, age difference. What's wrong with age difference? I told them the story about how at 21, I dated a 30 year old and it did not work because she was mature and I was not. And that's the truth of life is sometimes people are mature and sometimes people aren't. And I just told them that little story to make them understand that, no, John Smith should not have married Pocahontas. And here's a reason why, because some kids didn't get it. You know, they're not the point that they They see the horribleness of that. You know, they just see it as, well, you know, if she loved him, what was wrong with that? So I tell stories that way. Uh, All of my word problems that I give for math are stories. They're often stories about me, but oftentimes they're stories about my kids, too, my students, the the legacy that my kids have. So the kid who we always make fun of because she's 
she can take it. The kid who is stage fright, that kid will appear in a story. You know, all of the kids' quirks appear as part of the word problem so that those stories become real for the kids. There's rarely a moment that I'm not sort of incorporating story into my day. One of the biggest questions people have is, I don't know where to find good stories or what stories to tell. To which Matthew has a daily practice that he calls Homework for Life that helps him capture and document story-worthy moments. So Homework for Life is a process I started for myself about six years ago, and now I've passed it on to thousands of people. But essentially, it's the idea that at the end of the day, before I go to bed, I ask myself if I had to tell a story from something that happened today— even if the story that I tell would not be worth hearing, what is my most story-worthy moment of the day? And I write it down. I don't write down the whole story because I think that you know processes and habits have to be formed with small actions rather than large ones. So I just use Excel. I stretch the, the B column of my Excel spreadsheet across the screen, and in that B column, I write down what my story would be. So I've only got room for three or four sentences. But I'm essentially looking for a moment of transformation or realization as best as I can find it that day. Even if there isn't one of those moments, I force myself to write something down. And over the course of time, what I've discovered is I'm able to find stories where I used to not see stories and where most people don't see stories. And as people have engaged in this process, they have reported back to me by the thousands now that the same thing has happened to them, that they suddenly see their lives in different ways. They can see the stories that they were missing before thanks to this homework for life. And kids do it all the time, too. I hear from high school teachers, especially, all the time, who are telling me that their classes are now doing homework for life. It's really wonderful. I would thought I would try my hand at doing some storytelling in my classroom. Um, and we could kind of do what you do on your podcast with your wife, uh, where you listen to a story, generally someone that is much more experienced than I am uh, on the podcast. And you, you kind of critique it and say um, what they did well, what could be improved or changed. Um, and so some context of this story, uh, it, we were just coming back um, from the new semester and I had one of my students, her class job is to create uh, posters for the classroom, and she was creating this growth mindset poster. And I thought, well, I had a moment kind of earlier in the week um, where I went to my Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. I'm fairly new to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, only been doing it for like a week, a year and a half. And I wanted to tell a story where I was empathizing with the students about uh, kind of feeling like I don't know what I'm doing um, and trying to have like this growth mindset. Um, and so I'll, I want to do my own self-assessment after we listen to the story and kind of feel where I feel there's weaknesses there. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Welcome. So for those who don't know, uh, I started teaching pre-algebra maybe five years ago. And even when I first started teaching pre-algebra, I was learning things here and there because I hadn't actually taught a lot of this content or seen a lot of this content since I was a kid. Uh, but as the years progressed, I started learning it and feeling like I really knew pre-algebra content. You're teaching it year after year after year and getting lots of questions from students about some of the same things and learning how to answer those questions. I really felt and really feel that I know pre-algebra. This morning, I was at a, I go to a jujitsu class at 6 a.m. You all right? 
a student started choking on their spit, so natural interruptions that come with being in a classroom. This morning, I went to a jiu-jitsu class. I take a jiu-jitsu class at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, and it's like, a lot like wrestling. It's a type of martial art. I started jiu-jitsu in November of 2017. Um, when I'm there, there are people that are better than me. Um, there's people that are not as good as me because they're just starting, and I've got about a year under my belt. Um, and there's lots of different types of people. Uh, there's a chef that's there a lot of days. He's a, he's a professional chef. There's people there that sell cars for a living. There's a barber that, uh, that goes there. He's in his 50s. Um, and he's a lot better than me because he's been doing it longer than me. And so I was in class this morning. And the, the, the head coach, he's a black belt. He's been doing jiu-jitsu for a long time. He's showing us a technique. And he's like, OK, I want you to go with your partners. And so me and the chef, we find an empty spot in the mat, and we're trying to do the moves, and he's trying it to me, and I'm trying it to him. And it's a, with jiu-jitsu, you're in these positions where you have a lot of control and a lot of power, um, but sometimes you're in a position where your opponent has a lot of control and a lot of power, and you're trying to, to switch that. You're trying to get in a spot where, where you have control and power. And so we keep trying the moves back and forth, and then we come into a circle. Coach is like, all right. What questions do you guys have? And so one of the guys who's a lot more experienced than me, he asks a question. And the coach is like, it's a good question. Show me what you mean. And they actually go through it. And I start thinking, I'm like, well, I was really struggling with that, with the first part of the move. There's this, this part where I, I feel like I don't have the strength that I need to turn the guy over, but everyone else seems to be able to turn him over just fine. And so he asks, any other questions? And I want to ask my question, but I'm like, ah, everyone else seems to kind of understand this, though. So another guy asked a question. A guy is brand new. He started last week. Um, a white belt. And he's like, well, what do you do in this situation? And the coach is like, it's a great question. He starts to break it down a little bit. The coach is like, any other questions? And I'm like, ah, I still have my question, but I don't really want to ask it because I don't want to seem like I don't know what I'm doing. And what occurred to me was, I don't like being in a position where I look like I don't know what I'm doing. Even when I'm in a class that's there to show me how to do the things that I don't know how to do. And eventually, I asked the question. He's like, that's a good question, show me. And then he answered my question and we were able to actually move on and I wrote it down in my journal and was like, okay, I'm going to try to remember that. But I thought as someone who's in his 30s and has been in the classroom a lot, both as a teacher and a student, I even feel that feeling of like, I don't really want to ask this question. I don't want to show that I've got this mistake or that I've made this mistake. And so it made me empathize with my students where as much as I try to create an environment like my coach creates, where he's like, what questions do you have? Never tells anyone it's a bad question. Never makes anyone feel dumb for asking it. He just accepts the question and helps you out. As much as I try to create that environment for my students, I want my students to know that I can empathize with them. And I know what that feeling's like. And something that I'm going to try to do every day in jiu-jitsu is to see if I can be the first one to ask the question instead of having that mental thing, do I ask it, does everyone understand it, or am I the only one to move past that? So my hope is that my students 
would be courageous in asking those questions, would be courageous in making those mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And naturally, kids were asking questions afterwards, like, what was the name of the movie you were struggling, or what was the name of the chef, or are you talking like that because you're trying to make it sound dramatic for the podcast? I'm talking in a way that I'm trying to pull you into a story. I would say my own assessment uh, of that story, another student in another class ended up asking me, uh, why did you talk about the thing about being a teacher at the beginning? I think my, I, I wanted my five second moment to be, I don't, I don't like feeling like I, I don't like looking like I don't know what I'm doing or talking about. And so I was like, well, let me talk about an instance where I do know what I'm doing and I do know what I'm talking about. And that's in the realms of education and being a teacher. And so I just don't know if that transition was really smooth. Um, cause I know in, in a lot of good stories, there's, there just seems to be like, there's like a completely different setting. I'm talking about being in the classroom, but then I'm jumping to my jujitsu class at a different time. Um, and so there's not really that continuity. Um, I'm not sure if all of the details of the fighters and the people that were there were completely necessary. I think I was trying to paint a picture, uh, of just the diversity of the group. Um, just that it wasn't, you know, there was people that were older and people that were younger in all walks of life. Um, cause I felt that that was kind of important, uh, to, to kind of just show like, it's not just like, I'm, I'm not the youngest one there, you know, so, but I'm also not the oldest one there. Um, I feel some of the things that I did well was slowing down at my five second moment, um, really emphasizing that point uh, of the story. And I think a lot of the students understood the point of the story um, and why I was telling it uh, as we were about to start talking about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. Um, And it was actually a poster that said, in this class, mistakes are expected, inspected, and respected. And I was going to kind of talk about that. Um, and I wasn't, as you were talking earlier in the interview about like, you want to end with the five second story. I kind of ended with the five second story. Then I kind of explained it. And then I kind of said the five second moment again. And so I don't know if I could have rearranged a few things in there, uh, to kind of make it, make it kind of land a lot stronger, uh, than it did. So that's what I would say my self-assessment of my first like real, like thoughtful go at a story, um, instead of just like telling a sequence of events. Right. Uh, I thought your assessment was pretty good. I'm going to speak about some of the same things you spoke of, but I'm just going to speak about them differently. So I guess, I guess the place I would start is where you start your story. You know, you do what you do is something I hear a lot of people do that I don't recommend, which is you sort of lay out who you are and how you got here when really the story is about you in that class. Mm-hmm. And you being afraid to ask a question and finding the courage to ask it. And so what I would say is you got to get that story off the ground. It takes a long time for the story to get off the ground because you provide us with lots of background information. And ideally in a story, what you want to do is to provide that background information after the story is already moving. So mm-hmm. I would have started the story somewhere with, so I'm on a jujitsu mat and I'm trying to flip this guy over and I can't get him flipped over. Now you have my attention. And now I feel like the story's moving. It's already started. You know, we haven't had to start with this preliminary um, introduction to yourself, sort of. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the heart of the story is. Uh, there's another place to start. I'll talk about that in a second. But if you were to start in that spot, for example, I think you grab our attention, and then you can start to talk about yourself. 
And it's interesting, you, you talked about the people who you were trying to sort of paint that picture. I think that's the right instinct. The problem with it was they're just flat people that don't serve any purpose in the story. What you want to do is describe those people in relation to you. So every time you describe one of those people, you also tell us something about you. So you say, so there's an old guy there. I mean, I'm sure I can kick his butt, except he's been here for three years and he can do everything and I can do nothing. You know, and then there's this guy who, you know, is far cooler than I will ever be. And I wish he would go for a smoothie after class with me, but that's never going to happen. You know what I mean? So you pick the people out to provide that texture of the story, but also to reflect back upon yourself. And that way you keep the story centered on yourself. If you ever want to add humor to a story, that's the place to add it. When you can provide contrast, contrast is always funny. So you find the guy who's stronger than you and compare him to you, and that'll become funny. You find the smallest person in the room who is able to kick your ass, and that becomes funny. You You find those kinds of people, and then you're able to describe yourself effectively and give us people at the same time. Does that make sense? Yes. And then at the end of the story, I guess what I would suggest as a teacher is I would stop my story before I'd start talking about my students. I would leave my story off in the jujitsu um, parlor. What is it called? The jujitsu gym club. Gym. Okay. I would leave it there and I would stop the story and I would say, what does that story mean to you guys? And I would, through clever questions and maybe some great insight on your students' part, I would get them to say what you want them to say, which is, oh, I feel like that sometimes in class when I have a question, but I don't want to ask it because I feel like an idiot. Or I feel that way in class when I know I've made a mistake, but I don't want anyone to know I made a mistake. You know, or I get a test back and I don't want to share the score with anyone because I know it makes me look terrible. So I would get the kids to say it for me. That way I am not a lesson provider. I'm not really a teacher at that moment. I'm a storyteller who's offering up some content for discussion and allow the discussion to bring forth what you want. I think it's so much more powerful that way for kids. If you wanted to make sure that they sort of contextualize the classroom aspect to it, the other option is you can start with some specificity about a kid. Your story could start with, I'm leaning over a kid's desk. I know they've made a mistake, and they know they've made a mistake, and for some reason, they don't want to ask me for help, and it doesn't make any sense to me. This poor kid, I want to help them. I'm going to have to help them, but boy, I wish they would ask for help. It's just like the jujitsu studio three days ago, and you transform into, you know, you transfer into that place, and then you come back at the end of the story back to that kid. And that, you know, you sort of frame the story around a classroom, but you put the heart of the story, which is you on that mat with that guy and not being able to ask the question, you make that the middle of the story. So you could do it yep. that way too. That's the, the B A B C format of storytelling, or even the C-A-B-C, which is I'm going to start at the end of my story and then bring you back to the beginning, or I'm going to start in the middle of my story and bring you back to the beginning. Uh, I think that would be effective too. But I, you know, I think you did a good job. Uh, as my wife says, I should always lead with the positive, and I realized I did not lead with the positive here. Uh, it's okay. I'm a terrible human being. Uh, but no, overall, I thought you did a very good job. The kids, were, they sounded like they were quiet. And what grade do you teach? Uh, that was a class of seventh graders. So that's hard. Like, it's easier to keep fifth graders quiet than seventh graders. I know that 
Absolutely. It sounded like you had their attention, which, which was wonderful. And I think that the way the story flowed was interesting and entertaining, which is really number one and two and what you're looking for in terms of storytelling. You know, I think number three is to be vulnerable. I think that's just as important. And I think there was probably a space for you to speak a little more vulnerably to those kids, to admit the fact that it's kind of lousy to not be the best. It's kind of lousy to like have people who are older and smaller and heavier than you be better than you that kind of makes you feel bad like you know you you would even maybe talk about other times in your life where you weren't the best at something do you doubt that you're ever going to be the best in that in that sport you know are you ever going to shine in some way or you're always going to be able to be the guy who can't get somebody flipped over the mat when everyone else is getting somebody flipped over the mat you know kids appreciate vulnerability quite a bit when i am willing to admit to my failures and my stupidities uh kids really react well. And the beautiful thing is I tell my kids the story of being homeless when I was, you know, in my twenties. And the next day the kid comes in and says, I'm sleeping in the car with my mother right now. And she no, hasn't told anyone that. Or I tell the story about when I was in jail. And then, you know, that next hour a kid comes up to me and tells me his father's in prison and he hasn't been able to talk to any about anybody about these things because he's worried no one will understand. So when we're willing to be vulnerable about our, you know, our, our frailties and our flaws and the th- mistakes we've made in the past, kids will just come to you with things that you can't believe they have to say. So when I asked Matthew if he knew another teacher that was a very good storyteller so we could get an example of what it could sound like from someone who has a lot of experience and can do it well, he recommended Jennifer Bonaldo. I did a workshop at her school, and I guess I've been doing a workshop every year now at her school for six years. She was an English teacher, had never told a story in her life, never written anything in her life, but, you know, I think had always harbored dreams of doing something. So I came and taught a storytelling workshop with her. She got up the courage to start telling stories, first for her class, and then she pitched us a story at Speak Up, the organization that I run. And since then, she's told many stories on stages. She's spent a week with me at a yoga retreat, teaching storytelling alongside me. She's gone to the Moth and performed several times there. She's really a, she's turned herself into a professional storyteller, in addition to being an English teacher. Jennifer um, recorded a story that she shared. The context is, uh, she's, she spoke to 300 freshmen. It was like a day where they were working about, uh, talking about like making choices and finding your true identity. Uh, and so she kind of told a story from her time, uh, in school. Um, and when I asked her to give a little more context, she's like, yeah, I usually tell this story maybe two or three times, uh, a story, maybe this formally two or three times a year in addition to maybe smaller stories. But I wanted to listen to uh, someone that's a lot more experienced tell a story in a school setting uh, and then get your feedback on that as well. It's 1992 and I'm sitting at the fifth grade lunch table at Bethany Community School. And an Italian ice cup filled with a gelatinous sludge has just been placed before me and my friends are chanting my name. This is no ordinary lunch table. This is the table of tables for anyone who is anyone in fifth grade at BCS. And we're an exclusive group made up of the most beautiful girls and the cutest boys. And most people either have money or a bad reputation that gives them status. And the only way an outsider can sit at our lunch table is if you're dating someone in the group. 
By dating, of course, I mean you talk to each other on the phone and then completely ignore each other at school. But as soon as you break up, you're excommunicated from the table. And I was in this group. But understand that I was barely on the fringes of it. I was only there because I'd been friends with these girls since before we knew about popularity. So I think I sort of got grandfathered in. But I was without a doubt the least cool person in the cool group. I was overweight. My parents didn't have any money. So I didn't have a cool house or cool clothes. My mom didn't even let me have treats. So my lunches were super lame. Sometimes she'd make egg salad for lunch and everyone would be super grossed out. And I'd pretend to be grossed out. But really, I was super excited about my egg salad sandwiches. And that's how a lot of this time was for me, pretending to not like something or to like it in order to fit in, because I knew my inclusion in this group was not secure. I always had to be on guard, making sure I didn't say something stupid or wear the wrong thing. I spent half the time trying to blend in so no one would notice me and remember that I didn't deserve to be there and the other half of the time trying to impress the rest of the group to convince them that I did. And that day was a day to impress. At lunch, we'd often play this game where we would dare each other to eat disgusting concoctions of food. So we'd take the Italian ice cup and fill it with whatever we could find. The salad that was just iceberg lettuce and Italian dressing, pieces of Elio's pizza, someone's leftover pixie sticks, that frosting from the Dunkaroos, a few gushers, and that weird metallic-looking ham from a Lunchable. <laughs> and so this day's concoction was placed in front of me. It had turned sort of gray from the combination of actual food and red dye number 3,000. And little Teddy Grahams floated face down in the murky pool sort of ominously. And they all started chanting my name, forcefully but quietly, because we didn't want the lunch ladies to know what was going on. So they were chanting, Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. And I look across the table, and the boy I like, Derek Johnson, is sitting across from me. And I've had a crush on Derek Johnson since first grade. He's kind of like a bad boy with a heart of gold, you know? And he has that bleached hair that he always has to flip out of his eyes. We had dated once the year before for a period of three days until I was talking to him on the phone one night and stupidly told him I had to go because I had to go to my Weight Watchers meeting. The next day he told Ronnie Acabo, and Ronnie said, Dude, you can't date a girl who goes to Weight Watchers. And that was that. But today, Derek is looking at me. And he's chanting my name, too. So I have to do it. I have to eat the concoction. So I take a deep breath, and I shoot it as quickly as I possibly can. And there are some liquid parts and some parts I have to chew. And it tastes like I'm eating Slimer from the Ghostbusters. And I'm trying not to think about it. And it takes about 20 seconds. But eventually, I get it all down. And I slam the Italian ice cup on the table. And they cheer. Everyone cheers. And I look across the table at Derek. And he's smiling. And I know I've just increased my social status by 100 points. And Derek is looking at me. And that's all that matters. So we go back to class. It's raining, so we have to have indoor recess. And I'm sitting at my desk, just beaming from the events of the day, trying to play it cool by organizing my troll collection. But noticing the eyes on me, the approving eyes, the jealous eyes, Derek's eyes too, as he starts to organize his troll collection. And now everyone is organizing their trolls because suddenly I'm noticed and I'm important. 
But then I start to feel something else, something less victorious. My stomach starts to bubble and cramp. Saliva starts to fill my mouth and my face starts to sweat a little. My brain realizes what's happening too late. And as I projectile vomit across the table, I see the kids across from me shielding themselves in slow motion. I see the startled look of the faces on everyone's trolls. I see Derek shielding himself from my vomit. I run out of class. I run to the nurse's office. By this point, I feel fine, but the nurse takes pity on me and calls my mom to pick me up, and I don't go back to school for two days. And by then, of course, Derek has moved on to someone else, presumably someone who didn't vomit on his trolls, which is fair. I'd love to say that this was the last time I did something stupid to try to impress a boy, or the last time I ingested something questionable to look cool, or the last time I threw up after making a bad decision, but none of that's true. I would do all of those things over and over again for at least the next 10 years. But it was my first lesson, at least, one that stuck with me. I never ate another lunchtime concoction again, no matter how much my classmates taunted me. And I never encouraged anyone else to do it either. Because somewhere in my head, I understood that any power gained from this act was fleeting. I started to understand that I wanted more than this superficial belonging, that I wanted friendships with substance. And eventually, I realized I deserved them too. Thank you. I mean, she does a lot of smart things in that story. You know, one of my favorite parts of the story is she says that day was a day to impress. In the hands of another storyteller, uh, similar to your story that you told, she would have begun the story by talking about herself for a while and then said, one day. But she launched the story. She got it off the ground and then started talking about herself. So instead of one day, it was that day. It's the day where we've, we've been in the whole time. Even though she's telling us about her and her life, we see her at the table. We have something to sort of imagine in our minds. It's just really great. Um, the language she uses is interesting. She sounds like a teenager. You know, she's trying for it. You know, she uses the word super. It was super cool. That is not the way Jenny talks. Uh, but that is the way, you know, whatever it is, 12-year-old or 14-year-old Jenny talked. And so, you know, the best stories are told from the perspective of the age that you were when they happened. And so if I'm telling a story when I'm about a time when I was seven, I try to speak like a seven-year-old, not to the degree that I'm acting, but I just simplify my vocabulary and I try to see the world through a seven-year-old's eyes. The vulnerability that she has is really clear. I mean, she's telling kids that she went to Weight Watchers. You know, she's telling kids that she wasn't very popular. You know, she's telling her students about a really horrible and embarrassing moment. So I think that really reached her kids probably in a way that most stories don't because kids have those things saddled to them, but they don't often hear adults talk about them. So I loved that about it. I thought the vulnerability in her story was the strongest part of her story. Uh, the names, isn't the names great how she mentions those two boys' names? Isn't it funny how just the first and last name of another human being just somehow transforms the story into something so much realer? Yeah. I, I don't understand why that is, but that's true. And I love, my, I love how that is a story about a small step. You know, I think that's important when we talk to kids. If we tell stories to kids where we used to be bad, but now we're good, 
that is hard for kids because they don't make those big steps. So Jenny tells a story about how she learned something that day. Despite the fact that she learned it, she was going to go at least another 10 years making the same stupid mistake over and over again. She admits that she wasn't sort of cured of that mistake or, you know, she wasn't able to rid her life of that problem. She's just saying, I took a small step in the right direction. And so when I tell stories to kids, I try to tell stories about small steps because those are the kinds of steps that kids have to make. They don't get to make giant leaps. Nobody really does. But oftentimes in storytelling, we sort of imply that we made a giant leap and everything's all better or we suddenly see the world in a perfect way. And that's really not the case. And I think in all stories, I try to tell stories about small steps because those ring truer to audiences, but especially with kids, letting them know that it took me 10 years to figure that out. It's going to take you a while too, but it doesn't mean you can't start improving now. That growth mindset that you talked about, right? The idea that just start to change. Start by not drinking the gross stuff and then eventually feel better about yourself, you know? She did a she had a couple things. The line that she says where it wasn't the first time I was going to ingest something questionable. I mean, that is essentially a teacher saying, look, guys, I drank when I was a teenager and maybe I even used drugs, too. It's a great, clever, sneaky way to acknowledge to kids something that she probably is a teacher shouldn't acknowledge out loud, but found a way to tell kids I'm not so far away from you. You know, the decisions that I made as a kid were similar to the ones you are probably making right now. I, I thought that was really smart of her. She's good. I, I think she's just, she's great. Well, Matthew, is there anything that you would want to share uh, with other educators that are just wanting to start, wanting to try to tell meaningful stories uh, in their classrooms, um, be it something that's more about character and identity or even simple things like let's talk about customary versus metric or let's, uh, uh, let's look at electricity today. Um, what would you say to teachers that are, that are wanting to kind of just start telling more stories in their classroom? I think the problem is that teachers don't think they have the space to tell stories in the classroom, that they're too bogged down by content or that kids won't be interested or that their personal lives don't have a place in the classroom. And I think all of those things are not true. I think it's really important that kids see teachers as real, flawed, genuine, authentic human beings. I know that when I was growing up, I couldn't have told you which of the teachers were married and which weren't. I didn't know who had kids and who didn't. I just didn't feel that same connection with my teachers that I hope my kids feel today. You know, if you go into my classroom today, my students will be able to tell you the ages of my children and what their names are and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And they'll be able to tell you that my mother has passed away, but I, and I don't speak to my father, unfortunately. You know, they'll tell you that I was arrested and brought home by the police three times as a child. They'll tell you that I'm allergic to bees. They'll, they just know a lot about me. And I just know 100% without question Every time I share something about my personal life with my students, they become closer to me and they share more with me. And so I become the bearer of these secrets that 
they always tell me, I've never told another teacher about this before, or really sometimes I've never told anyone this before. And it's not because I'm special, it's just because I'm willing to open up and share. And I just don't think teachers think it's right, or it's appropriate, you know, or it's useful. So the thing I always tell teachers is, just try, like, start talking a little bit about your personal life. Talk about what you had for dinner last night, especially if you burned it. You know, talk about the sport you played when you were a teenager, especially if you were bad at it. You know, tell them about the first girlfriend that you had, especially if she dumped you. You know, those are the stories kids really want to hear, and then they'll get closer to you. I, I just think that there's a, under, there's a belief that it's not right for teachers to be talking about these things in the classroom. And I think it is wrong for any teacher to feel that way. And so if you're interested in refining your storytelling abilities, check out Matthew's book, Storyworthy, which was the book that I read in preparation for telling my own story in the classroom. Additionally, him and his wife, Alicia's podcast is called Speak Up Storytelling. Not every episode deals with sort of the classroom, but my wife is a kindergarten teacher and I'm a fifth grade teacher. And so we both host the podcast. So we're often delving into educational issues as well. So they can learn about storytelling there, but they can also hear how I'm using it in the classroom. That'll help be helpful to them as well. And so while Storyworthy is a nonfiction book on storytelling, most of the other books he's written have been fiction books, including one that is going to be coming out later in 2019 called 21 Truths About Love. It's actually a novel written entirely in lists. It's an obsessive list maker, and the book is nothing but a series of list after list after list that when read to their completion, tell the story of this man and the struggle that he is engaged with him. It's unusual, and I'm hoping people like it. And so if you want links to all of his books, the podcast, his storytelling workshops, and all of Matthew Dix's social media, you can find it all at matthewdix.com. The clip from the beginning of the show where Matthew was telling the keys story was from the Art of Manliness podcast, and if you'd like to listen to that episode, I've linked it in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Stories from the Classroom. This is the first episode under this new name, as this was formerly known as the Tom Gibson Podcast, and so I thought this would be an appropriate first episode with that new name. My name is Tom Gibson. I'm the creator and producer of this show. You can connect with me on Twitter, at GibsonEDU, or find my blog and other episodes of the podcast and links to a ton of other social media at TomGibson.com. That's T-H-O-M-G-I-B-S-O-N.com as well as my YouTube channel, which I'm posting to about once a week, different things that are going on in my classroom, and that is at youtube.com slash gibsonedu. To stay in the loop with any upcoming episodes of this show, you can subscribe to Stories from the Classroom wherever podcasts are available. Thanks so much for listening, and hopefully I'll see you in the next episode. 